Well, we are concluding our series in the book of Jonah this morning. The book of Jonah is really just a snapshot of an event in the life of Jonah. This particular event in his life was a calling to preach to Nineveh, which was the capital city of the Assyrians, a Gentile nation, Gentile meaning non-Jewish. This was a pagan nation, a nation filled with idolatry and violence. They did not know the Lord and had no concern for his people. As I've shared before, this nation was known for its heinous practices of torture of those whom it had conquered, among other things. Nineveh was not a vacation spot. The people of Nineveh were not known for being good people. They were not the kind of people you would invite as dinner guests. If you were a neighboring nation, you would feel suspicious. You would be guarded. You would assume the worst. You would fear and probably hate them. The thought of visiting such a place would evoke, again, great fear, hesitation, anxiety, and even repulsion. As we know, Jonah was a man. This whole time I've referred to Jonah as a prophet, which he was. Prophets prophesied. That is what they did. That is what they were called to do. They would receive direct revelation from God and they would proclaim it to the people. But the reality is that prophets were people too. That may sound strange to say, but I think sometimes we forget this fact. Sometimes we forget that prophets were not super spiritual beings. They were not angels sent down from heaven to do the will of God. They were not robots. They were specially gifted, but that didn't change their essential nature. They were human. They were people just like us. Again, Jonah was a man. As a man, he experienced the same emotions, the same thoughts, the same concerns that any of us would approaching a nation like the Assyrians in their capital city of Nineveh. As we know, he did not like them. So why, we might wonder, if God were omniscient, if he knows all things, which he does, why would he send a man like Jonah on this kind of task? Why would God send Jonah, knowing Jonah's dispositions and feelings toward Nineveh? I've also said often, that God is just as concerned with the messenger as he is with the message. He is just as concerned with the preacher of the gospel as he is with the preaching of the gospel. So we see as we come to chapter 4 and conclude our study that though the message has already gone forth to Nineveh, though the people responded with humility and repentance at the preaching of the word of God, the story is not yet over. It is not yet over because there is something that Jonah still needs to learn. The lesson for us this morning from Jonah 4, as it was for Jonah, is simple. It is the compassion of the Lord that should control our response to the wickedness of others. It is easy to respond to the wickedness of others with disgust or disdain. But our Lord has called us to something better. The Lord has shown compassion to the wicked through the salvation that he offers, and obviously that includes us. We who are believing were at that time wicked And sometimes we still do wicked things. So we of all people should understand and appreciate the compassionate heart of God. This is again Titus chapter 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show 
perfect courtesy towards all people, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It is the heart of compassion of the Lord that should motivate and guide our acts towards others, no matter who those others are and no matter what they've done. Well, Let's read chapter 4 of Jonah together. Turn there if you haven't. And then we'll examine the text more closely. Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might shade, be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, again, we come before you and ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively Be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, there are four movements in this passage surrounding Jonah's attitude toward the events of chapter 3. First, we see Jonah's hostility in verses 1 through 3, and then we see the Lord's inquiry, a very simple question in verse 4. Afterward, we see Jonah's hypocrisy in verses 5 through 8, and then the Lord's philosophy in verses 9 through 11. Jonah's hostility, the Lord's inquiry, Jonah's hypocrisy, and the Lord's philosophy. Let's look at that first point, Jonah's hostility in verses 1 through 3. Read with me again. 
but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, the actual wording in verse 1 is a little stronger than it appears in the English text here. In the original, it says more literally, and it was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and it caused anger in him. I'm not sure why we smooth it over in the English text that way, but the point is that Jonah was very angry. Again, we're talking about a man here, and we don't always respond rationally to the events of life, right? Jonah's response here is not rational for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the fact that anger towards God, whether you direct it towards him or to his actions, is dangerous. It is dangerous because it is God. We can get angry with each other, and perhaps it will result in an exchange of words, maybe even an exchange of blows. In more extreme cases, there may be a loss of life, but becoming angry with God and making him your adversary is dangerous precisely because he can destroy both body and soul. Then what does your anger accomplish? The reality is, though, that being angry with God is simply pointless. I mean, who are we to be angry with the creator God, and what is it to him? Can we actually hurt him with our anger? I wonder what people actually think they can accomplish when they don't like things that happen in their lives, and they express their anger with God, and they shake their fists at him. Perhaps they stop going to church. Perhaps they stop praying. Perhaps they stop giving to charities. Perhaps they say they stop believing. But who does that really hurt? If you're lost in a hot desert and you have before you a lake of fresh, drinkable, life-sustaining water, which you'd find nowhere, and you turn away from that water, does the lake hurt for that? Is the lake even bothered that you've turned away from it? It'll continue as it has been, being the life-sustaining source that it always has been. You will suffer. The anger of man towards God accomplishes nothing. It is irrational in and of itself. But we know that Jonah's anger here is irrational for another reason. The it which displeased Jonah is a reference back to chapter 3. Again, in chapter 3, Jonah obeyed the call of God to preach to Nineveh. He went, he preached, Nineveh heard, repented, and God relented of the judgment that he said he would bring to them. God did not destroy Nineveh, and Jonah was angry about that. And that makes no sense. As we go on, the Lord will work with Jonah to help him understand the foolishness of this way of thinking. Look again at verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from calamity. Jonah was angry with the Lord because he did not destroy Nineveh. But it's interesting that he still prayed. In chapter 2, I made the point that Jonah responded as a believer when he was sinking into the depths of the consequences for his sin. And what did he do then? Then he prayed. He reached out to the Lord, the same Lord whose hand was against him. He reached out to the Lord for help. Here again, Jonah is very angry about the state of Nineveh, that the Lord showed them compassion. But instead of stomping away in anger, shaking his fist at God and turning his back, he does still draw near. He seeks the Lord in prayer. I hope you all see the importance of that. We will not always like what God allows. In fact, 
We may at times hate what God allows, but the reality is that we still live in God's world. For the believer, his disposition towards us is always love. So we have to assume that this terrible thing that has happened to us does not change the essential nature of God, that he's still good. He's still Emmanuel. He's still with us. He's still for us. For all of his failings, Jonah still operates as a believer here. I think that's important for us to recognize. He reaches out to the Lord in prayer, and he reveals another nugget of information, something that was previously overlooked in the course of the narrative in chapter 1. He says, Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? In other words, Jonah had a conversation with the Lord after his initial call in chapter 1. We don't have it recorded verbatim, but there was a conversation, and it centered around the fact that Jonah knew exactly what would happen if he went and preached to Nineveh. Is this not what I said? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, Jonah says. I knew it was going to happen, and that's why I ran away. Whatever we may think about Jonah and his actions is recorded in this narrative we have to admit that Jonah had good theology. Often sin is a result of bad theology. Theology is a study of God. It's knowing who God is and his person. Bad theology means that we think incorrectly about God. We may think at times, God wants my happiness above all other things. That foolish theology has led many people to sin thinking that God is calling them to do this, that, or the other thing. We may think, if I only believe believe enough, I'll never have any problems. Again, that is utterly foolish theology and has never been the testimony of any believer in the history of God's people. God is not looking. Other people cannot see me, so certainly God is not aware. I think we all know what sort of damage that kind of theology can lead to. In Jonah's case, however, his sin was not as a result of bad theology. He had good theology. He simply didn't apply it correctly. He erred in the way that he was thinking about the character of God. He knew who the Lord was. Again, you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Those words should sound familiar. Again, it is an echo of Moses' words from Exodus 33. When the Lord proclaimed his glory before Moses, Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord essentially said this very same thing to him before he sent Moses to deliver his people from Egypt. The Lord says, this is who I am. I'm gracious. And gracious has often been described as God's riches at Christ's expense. God gives to us what we do not deserve. He is compassionate or merciful. His word is related to the term for womb. Thinking about the way a mother has compassion on her children, has pity on her children. Some have called this divine pity. It is often used to describe how God withholds judgment that is deserved. He is slow to anger. I think we've talked about this before, but it's akin to being a a slow-boiling pot. Like the pot is, it, it takes a long time. You turn the pot on, but you turn it on really low. So it takes a really long time to get the boiling. God is slow to anger. Abundant in loving kindness, meaning he has great faithful love for us and one who relents concerning calamity. He doesn't rejoice in calamity. 
He doesn't take pleasure in condemning the wicked, and instead he would be inclined to forgive. Jonah says, I know who you are. Lord, I knew that you would show them compassion. I knew that all they needed to do was repent and you wouldn't destroy them. But this shouldn't be. They deserve judgment. You know the kind of people they are. Jonah had no interest in showing compassion to Nineveh. Again, he knew what they were all about and he determined that judgment was coming. He knew that if he preached, that God would spare them if they repented. So initially he refused to go and preach. You know, it's often so much easier to make judgments about the sin of others. It's so much easier for us to see the sin of others and to classify them as wicked or foolish. When it comes to the sin of others, particularly when their sin affects us, things are often very black and white with us, open and closed. They're either guilty or innocent, usually guilty. There's no excuse that can be offered, no quarter to be offered. They're guilty and they ought to be condemned. We're usually very clear about the sin of others. I wonder if there's someone in your life for whom you've had these kinds of thoughts. There's someone in your life whose sin has either directly or indirectly affected you and who you are certain is deserving of the divine judgment of God. James is clear that the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. And yet when we become angry about the sin of others and its impact on us, often we feel that we're justified in measuring out God's judgment on them. Again, Jonah is a man. And as a man is responding in the same way that we do in such cases, and his way of thinking about this is just wrong. It's often the case that as easy as it is for us to make judgments about the sin of others, it is very rare that we're able to make those same judgments about our own sin. Moving back to the text again, it says that Jonah was very angry that Nineveh was spared. So angry, in fact, in verse 3, he says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. He's so angry, he's just ready to give up. He's ready to die. It seems a bit dramatic, but it underscores how far our thought processes can digress when we're in sin. Note he does say here, Lord, take my life. He doesn't assume that he, he has the authority to take his own life. This is not suicide, which is just that, an assumption that we have the right to take our own life when it doesn't belong to us. God is the giver of life. He's at least thinking clearly about that. Nevertheless, Jonah's hostility, his anger in this passage is real. It's raw. It's relatable. They don't deserve to live. They should get what they have coming to them. Why would God spare them another hour? You know what, God? Just take my life. Let me be done with it all. Well, in verse 4, we see the Lord's inquiry. A very simple question. Verse 4, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? That is the question, is it not? In the original, the question is something like, is it good or right for you to be angry? Is this really the right response, Jonah? How the Lord handles Jonah in this depressed state is instructive for us. Correction has to involve helping people to see that the way they're thinking about something is incorrect. If all you do in correction is tell someone that something is right or wrong, then we've missed the mark. I've made several points throughout this series in relation to parents and children. This applies to them, but also to anyone who's an authority and has a position to correct another. 
The Lord could have easily told Jonah here what he wanted for him to do, how he wanted for him to think. Certainly that is appropriate in some cases. Maybe there's a time constraint. Maybe the person you're talking to has limited cognitive ability for one reason or another. Maybe they're just very young. Maybe they're very immature. And you just have to tell them, look, this is the way it is. But for most of us, simply telling them what's right or wrong is not necessarily going to help them. We have to see them where they've erred in their thinking and build them up to right thinking. And what's more helpful is if you can guide them in the business world and in a coaching, we talk about self-discovery, helping people to discover the way their thinking is wrong on their own. And this process of helping to guide them to see where they've erred in their thinking on their own, that usually involves asking a number of deliberate questions to prompt the right kind of thinking. That is what the Lord is doing here with Jonah. He's trying to guide Jonah to the right way of thinking on his own. Do you do well to be angry about this? Is that really the right thing to do? I'm grateful for the Lord's patience on display in this. If I were God, which I think we all should be glad I'm not, I would have taken Jonah up on his request. You know what? You want to be done with it, dude? I can take care of that for you. I got other people I can call on, right? I mean, really. I got other people I could call. I don't need this right now. But God is patient. And he's being patient here with Jonah. He's showing that same compassionate heart to Jonah. And he's trying to help Jonah to think about this for a minute. In the midst of his depression and discouragement, Jonah, think about this. This is what you need. You need to hear me. And you need to think about this. Are you thinking right about this? Is this the right way to be thinking about this situation? I like this quote in thinking about the patience of God. The writer says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. That's a quote of Isaiah 55. The writer says, our human nature has no ruler to measure God's goodness. Our natural imaginations cannot grasp his heights. His kindness is not like our kindness, his forgiveness not like our forgiveness, and his patience not like our patience. The greatest display of God's patience, however, appear in response to our sin. God is patient means not mainly that God waits a long time, but that God shows long-suffering kindness to sinners. As God declares to Moses on Mount Sinai, he's not just slow, but he's slow to anger. And God is being slow to anger with Jonah right now. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? I think that the Lord would have said this in a very gentle and patient tone to him. Is this really the right response, Jonah? Are you thinking correctly about the situation? Is it good for you to be angry that people were spared? I mean, shouldn't you want that for them? You of all people, you who've experienced the compassion of God, not too long ago even, shouldn't you want that for others? When we get angry about the sin of others, is it right for us to do that? When we wish fire and brimstone down on them for their sin and how has it affected us, is it right? I mean, are we really capable of determining the judgment that is due to someone else? Are they your servant to command? Are you God? Do you have authority over them? 
When we are angry with the Lord about something that he allows in our lives, is it right for us to be angry at him? Are we thinking correctly about that? You're angry with the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land about something that's going on in your life? Like you have authority over him? I'll take it a step further and apply it a little bit differently. When we in the church refuse to take the gospel to the lost, when we refuse to share it with others, when we simply neglect to do so, is it right for us to effectively turn our heads in the face of their judgment as if we have nothing to say about it? As if it is right for them to just die and go off into the judgment of God? Is that right for us? Are we thinking rightly about that? Is it someone else's responsibility? Moving on. Again, we've seen Jonah's hostility in the Lord's inquiry. Next, in verses 5 through 8, we'll see Jonah's hypocrisy. Verses 5 through 8, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Solely based on the compassion that God showed to Jonah alone, he should have been more compassionate toward the Ninevites. But clearly he wasn't there yet. So the Lord gave him another illustration. Jonah had gone out of the city after he preached, made a booth for himself that's just kind of like a tent to lodge in for a while, as the text says, to see what would become of the city. I'm not really sure what that means other than the fact that maybe Jonah was assuming that the Lord relented this time, but maybe Jonah would fall back, Jonah, maybe Nineveh would fall back into their foolish ways and the Lord's judgment would return. Maybe he was just waiting to see how all that would pan out. But he went out of the city and just just sat down to take a look for a while. Well, to help Jonah gain a better understanding of the error of his ways, as we've seen multiple times in this account, the Lord exercises his authority over nature. And what should clearly be understood as another miraculous event, the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head. This is clearly to be understood as something out of the ordinary. Now, we don't know what kind of plant it was. Some people in commentaries have tried to identify it. The point is not what kind of plant it was. No more than in the point of chapter 2, it was the kind of fish it was. It doesn't really matter. The point was to show God's sovereign control over all things as the one who made the sea and the dry land and to show his care for teaching his prophet a lesson. He made this plant to grow, the Lord did, and it provided Jonah with shade. And Jonah became very happy, the text says, exceedingly happy. Now this, of course, is meant to mirror the exceeding evil that Jonah felt earlier. As much as he was angry earlier about the events of chapter 3, this little plant made him likewise happy. This was a 180 degree change. Jonah experienced comfort from the heat, became extremely happy, having just asked the Lord to take his life. And all because of a little plant. Now I'll say this also. And the point of this passage is not to talk about our feelings. But doesn't this describe our feelings sometimes? Here one day, there the next. Up one day, down the next. 
in the throes of depression one day on the highest of heights the next. Perhaps it takes a little bit more than a day for the swing, but our emotions do tend to wax and wane. It would behoove us then perhaps to not make life-altering decisions when we're not feeling well or when we're discouraged, right? Psychologist Rod is leaving the building. (laughs) Getting back to the text. As far as our feelings go, his didn't last long. Verse 7, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching wind The sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and again said, it is better for me to die than to live. God continued exercising his authority over nature, and after appointing a plant, next he appointed a worm. The worm attacked the plant, had a nice little feast, and then the plant withered and died. The sun rose, and God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on him. The wind was hot, and so Jonah started to feel faint. Don't miss that God is in control here. God is at work. Now, a worm in and of itself is not supernatural. A scorching wind in the middle of the desert is not supernatural. But the worm that attacked this particular plant on this particular day was supernaturally appointed by God. And the scorching wind that kicked up at that particular moment to intensify Jonah's comfort was supernaturally appointed by God. When the book of Hebrews says that all discipline seems for the moment not to be joyful but sorrowful, I think that Jonah would have given a hearty amen to that. Now, he may not have been thinking about this as discipline, probably not in the right frame of mind, but regardless, we can tell that the Lord was working on Jonah, trying to help him to see the error of his way of thinking and really his hypocrisy. Jonah's response again was to ask to die. Now, don't miss the irony of the text here. Jonah went from being upset that Nineveh was spared judgment to being upset that his discomfort was lessened because a plant that the Lord provided ceased to exist. A plant. A plant that was not his. It did not belong to him. He didn't sow it. He didn't feed it. He didn't tend to it. The Lord appointed it. It popped up. It gave him some comfort from the heat. People were spared. The plant was not spared, and Jonah was angry. That is the epitome of hypocrisy. He was ready to show compassion on a plant, really more for his own comfort. We're pretty good about that, right? We're good about justifying the need for our own comfort and good and not really being concerned with what is good for others. Jonah was ready to show compassion for a plant and not to people. Now, that can't make sense to any sane person. It shouldn't make sense to any sane person. It shouldn't make sense any more than it makes sense for people in our day to be angry that they cannot have the choice to murder unborn children whenever they want and in the same breath be upset when someone harms an endangered species of animal. End the life of a so-called fetus, also known as an unborn child, and it's simply your choice. Step on the egg of a bald eagle and face a possible prison sentence. Does that make sense? Back to our text again. Has Jonah learned his lesson yet? Well, we'll see in verses 9 through 11 the Lord's philosophy of compassion. At some point, as you're trying to guide people, you really just have to instruct them. And this is what the Lord does here. Verses 9 through 11. 
But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plan? Of course, Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Again, do you do well to be angry for the plant? It's the same leading question, one that we hope that Jonah would be able to answer by now. He still doesn't get it. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die, mirroring his earlier statement. Again, underscoring that he's not thinking correctly about this. Again, we have a way of justifying our thoughts when we think we are correct. We have a way of expressing the justification of our thoughts when, we th- when we're being corrected. The proverb says that it is a fool who despises correction. Jonah is showing himself to be a fool here. And the Lord's purpose and correction here is not to simply state the obvious right or wrong answer, but to help Jonah to understand that the way he is thinking about this needs to be corrected. And so he gives further explanation. Verse 10, again, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Jonah pitied the plant, same word for compassion. This last outburst of anger, of depression, of a desire to lose his life was for the plant, a plant that no longer existed. The Lord is pointing this out here. And as I alluded to earlier, this is a plant for which Jonah, again, for which he did not labor, the text says. He did not make it grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a light. The plant had a very short lifespan, which had nothing to do with Jonah, as plants commonly do. It was all the Lord's doing. It was all his work. It was his provision. He is the giver of life for all. And certainly for the plant. But Jonah's response to the death of the plant was as if he were responsible for its life, as if he were the sustainer of life, as as if he were the caregiver. When in fact the problem really boiled down to his loss of comfort. The Lord said, you pitied the plant, but verse 11, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Hear the comparison there. Jonah pitied a plant. He's not the giver of life concerning the plant. He had nothing to do with it. By comparison, the Lord says, and should I not pity Nineveh? The implication is, which Jonah should understand, that he is the Lord. He is the giver of life for all, including the people of Nineveh. He is the sustainer of life when it comes to the people of Nineveh. He is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, including all things in between. Whether they're the people of Israel or some pagan nation like Nineveh, God has given them life. Should I not pity Nineveh? He is the giver of life and there is a lot of life involved. Look again, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons and also much cattle. I mentioned this last week, but the term great here is intended to call attention to the great number of people. The size of the city itself is irrelevant. The importance of the city is irrelevant. He's not calling it great because it's important. The Lord's point is, is that there are a lot of people, a lot of lives there, and those lives matter to the Lord. He is compassionate and thus he cares for each one. This is not just one plant that touches the life of one man. There are more than 120,000 lives which walk the face of the city of Nineveh. 
The Lord says, should I not pity them? He is the giver of life. There's a lot of life involved, and they're ignorant of God and his purposes. Look again at verse 11. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? That they do not know their right hand from the left is not intended to suggest that they're all stupid. This is not total ignorance. It's ignorance of spiritual things in context. When we initially began the series, I alluded to that fact. From the words of the king in chapter 3, it is clear that prior to the preaching of the word of God from Jonah, they had no idea that their actions were considered evil in the sight of the Lord. It was only by the preaching of the word of God that they came to the conclusion that their actions were evil and violent, that they needed to understand their actions as such, and more than that, that they needed to turn away from their evil and violence. They were ignorant of these truths prior to the preaching of the word of God. I made the point then, as I will again now, that it is only through the preaching of the word of God that anyone comes to know the truth of the Lord's judgment concerning sin, of his standard concerning righteousness, and that our actions and rebellions against him are the epitome of evil. Rebelling against the will of the creator is the epitome of evil. This knowledge does not come through human means. Again, 2 Corinthians, Paul says that the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God. He cannot know them because they are spiritually appraised and they don't have the spirit of God. And it's only through the preaching of the word of God that the spirit of God is poured out on that dead soul to give them new life so that they can then understand and appreciate spiritual truths. Bringing this home to our time, we look around and scoff at the wickedness of others. Their wickedness is rooted in ignorance. They are ignorant of the reality that they live in God's world, that he as the creator has a standard, and that they are not living according to that standard. We pity the loss of creature comforts in this life. We complain when we have to wear face masks because of a global pandemic. We complain when our favorite streaming service increases their prices. We complain when our boss requires us to work on an additional project, on a steady job that pays our bills and put foods on the table. We complain when our server at a restaurant where people cook for us, prepare meals for us, clean up after us, isn't responsive as much as we'd like. We complain when friend, family, neighbor gets something better than us. We pity the loss of creature comforts in this life, but often fail to apply the pity and compassion of God to those around us who are apart from Christ and in danger of facing his judgment. God is the author of all life. He is the giver and sustainer of all life. He owns life. There is no life apart from him. There is no being apart from him. Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. That is why the idea that someone can choose to terminate life, whether it is at the beginning stages of life and conception or at the end, is utterly absurd. It is not ours to take. Women do not give life. God gives life. Women bear children who are created according to the sovereign control and will of God as he uses a part of both a male and a female. And that fact will never change, by the way, no matter what the society says. Those who believe otherwise are ignorant of this truth. God is the author of all life. He has authority. Not we ourselves. 
As God is the author of all life, he determines whether we're born male or female. We have no authority to determine otherwise. In the natural course of conception that God has sovereignly wills, he assigns sex, whether it be male or female. God has not authored any other way. We have no right to determine otherwise. Those who believe so are ignorant of this truth. God has designed the act of sex to be done within marriage for the enjoyment of the husband and wife and for the propagation of humanity. That is the natural order of things as ordained by God, and it is good. To do otherwise, to have sex outside of the committed marriage vows, to attempt to satisfy one's appetites outside of that paradigm, one husband and one wife, is a rejection of the good provision of God for humanity. It is a rejection of his will for humanity to be fruitful and multiply. Those who believe otherwise are ignorant of this truth. We are made in the image of God. Murder, theft, racism, abuse, any form of violence from one man made in the image of God to another is an assault on the image of God, the purposes of God, and filling the world with those made in his image. It is an obstruction of his desire for us to bear his image well among the rest of the created order. Those who believe otherwise are ignorant of this truth. Anytime we reject the will of our creator, anytime we rebel against the will of our creator, it is cosmic treason. It is evil to believe otherwise is to be ignorant of these basic truths of the reality of God's creation. To believe otherwise is to put yourself in danger of God's righteous judgment. It is to sit yourself in the middle of a busy roadway while an 18-wheeler is barreling down upon you. It is to do so with your ears plugged up to keep all sound out of those who would hope to warn you. Ignorance is bliss. Not being aware of impending danger is bliss until the danger comes upon you. As Paul said in Acts 17, again, God is overlooking the times of ignorance and declaring now to all people everywhere that they must repent. Because the day of judgment is coming. Believer, you must proclaim this truth. To fail to do so and to justify not doing so is evil and rebellion against your creator, savior, and king. Do you too well to think that it is someone else's responsibility to take this message to the world? Again, the Lord says, should I not pity Nineveh? The Lord's philosophy concerning the ignorant and the lost is that compassion should rule. Compassion should characterize our thinking about the ignorant and the lost. Do you do well to think any other way? we're focused on the sin of others and intent on responding to it, it will only lead to anger. Instead, what we learn from this event in the life of Jonah is that it is our responsibility as godly men and women, as the people of God, as his children, to seek to focus on his character, on his person, that he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting concerning calamity. It is for us to let him be our vision. And in doing so, to be transformed so that we respond, not according to our judgment, but according to his. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. The young man asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus responded with the story of the Good Samaritan. And again, the point is, the Good Samaritan, the one who is a neighbor, is the one who shows compassion to others. The one who sees those who are weak 
and broken and beaten and hurting around them and who reaches out to them with compassion. And what's more compassionate than the compassionate heart of God for the lost? Those who are, as we sang earlier, what did the song say? Come ye sinners poor and needy. Those who are weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save them. But how will they know that unless you tell them? How will they know that unless you preach? How will they know that unless you share with them the compassion of God that you have experienced and the compassion of God that is available in Christ? Again, Jonah was a man. Because he was a man, he was human. We can relate to this event in his life. We can relate to his reaction to this event in his life. But we also acknowledge that he did not react as a godly man concerning Nineveh. I gave you a definition of godliness earlier on in the series, the appreciation and application of the character of God in our life. That's what godliness is. It is both appreciating and it is applying the character of God. We love to appreciate God's character and the goodness of God towards us. We love to sing praises to him about it. But do we actually apply it to our lives and live it out? That was Jonah's issue. His desire should have been to imitate the compassion of God, to apply the compassion of God in his thinking about Nineveh, regardless of their past sins. Well, God, for his part, as he is compassionate, showed compassion both to Jonah and to multiple groups of unbelievers in this account as we've gone through the study of Jonah. Well, I hope this study has encouraged you. My prayer has been, as we embarked on this study, was to encourage you and encourage our desire to take the good news of Christ to others that we would see the people around us not as those for whom we should be repulsed because of their sin, because of their involvement in the ways of the world and the immorality of society, but that we would see people, anyone whom we know is presently ignorant of the grace of God, ignorant of his will, ignorant of his judgment, that we would see them as someone for whom to have compassion and that we would understand that the greatest compassion that we can show to the lost is to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. I'll continue to pray that that would be true of all of us, that us together, we together as the Catonsville Baptist Church would be compassionate as the Lord is compassion, that we, compassionate, that we would show his compassion to the lost and to those around us for their good and for the glory of Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity, again, that we have to come before your word, your truth, to think on your word, your truth, to think on your compassion. We're grateful for the compassion that you have shown to us in Christ. And pray, God, that as we see the lost among us, around us, that we would not look upon them with disdain, but with compassion. And that as the Good Samaritan, that we would seek to bind up their wounds by delivering the balm of the gospel. And by pointing them to the great physician, the Lord Jesus. We're grateful for him. Pray that you make these things true for us in Christ's name. Amen.